Right now, across Australia, there are 46,000 children and young people in government care who can't live safely at home. While some live in kinship or foster care, 4,000 of these kids aren't currently in home-based care. At Adopt Change, our goal is simple, to ensure a home for every child and healing for those who have experienced trauma. We plan to do this with the support of our community and listeners such as yourself, who share our vision for a world where all children can grow, learn, play and thrive in safe, nurturing and stable homes, schools and communities, and who share our belief that families need to be supported. (laughs) I'm Michelle Stackpole, and you're listening to the podcast, A Home and Healing for Every Child where we host conversations with global thought leaders, experts, and individuals with lived experience on topics including foster and kinship care, adoption, child welfare, trauma, and healing. In today's episode, Dr. Jessica Price chats about inclusive, equitable, and effective child welfare. After earning her PhD at Harvard University and working in New York State for two years, Dr. Price was appointed in 2016 as the Executive Director of the Florida Institute for Child Welfare. Her research has focused on the training and education of the workforce, racial disparity in child welfare decisions, and the disproportionality in the United States foster care system. Dr. Price is an amazing speaker, and this episode was recorded for the Adopt Change National Permanency Conference 2020, supporting children at home and school to thrive. Hello, I'm Jessica Price, and I am from the United States of America. I work at Florida State University. I am the Executive Director of the Florida Institute for Child Welfare. And today I will be talking about addressing racial disparity and disproportionality. The title of the talk will be Strengthening Families Using a Racial Equity Lens. So here in the United States, we are struggling with disparity and disproportionality. And we also know that other parts of the world are also dealing with this issue. I have received calls from people in Canada and people in Europe that are also dealing with disproportionality and disparity of black and brown youth. So some issues that we're having around Black children are they make up about 14% of our American population, but they're upwards of 23 to 24% of our out-of-home placement, as we call it foster care, where the government is their parent. So they are grossly disproportionate from their population numbers. As it relates to Native American children in the United States, they're they're merely 1% of our population, but they are three times as likely to be placed in out-of-home government care. So we're dealing with a lot of disproportionality with those two groups. Depending on some areas of the United States, we also have this issue with Hispanic children. It just depends on where you are and how far you drill down into certain municipalities. Another issue that we're having is Black children experience placement instability. 40% of the Black children that we put in foster care are moving from placement to placement. And we all understand how so many issues arise when there's no stability in placement. Issues like behavioral and socio-emotional deficiencies. 
also reactive attachment disorder. These types of issues follow a child throughout their life. And our system is really creating so much trauma that it's really leaving an imprint on these kids, particularly Black kids. We're also facing an issue with the amount of calls that we get into our system. There's bias at the front door, as we call it, the front door to our system. We have an abuse hotline that people can call. And black and brown kids are more likely to have an abuse report called on their family. So that's also an issue that we're having in the United States. Disproportionality at multiple places throughout the system. The research has been trying to dig deep into how and why these things are happening. We call this research that are trying to figure out the explanatory factors. You know, we know there's bias, we know there's disparity, disproportionality, so how can we explain it? Some research points to poverty. If Black children, as they are in America, are disproportionately in poverty, then it's likely that that will drive the numbers of them higher into our system. So research has uncovered poverty being an explanatory factor to disparity and overrepresentation. Research also talks about something called surveillance bias. And what we mean by that in the research is we tell families that are in need to go to different service providers, right? We say, go to work at this agency to get a job, go to this agency for counseling, go to this agency if you need, if you have food insecurity. So we send them to social services. So what does that mean? There's more surveillance on them, more eyes on them. In America, we call this mandatory reporters. So there are some professionals in America where you have to call in abuse reports if you think there's abuse happening. So research also points to the fact that low-income families drift from one social service network to the next. So they're seen by more people and they're exposed to more people's implicit bias. So that is driving numbers into our system. So there's also other explanatory factors around geography. So I used to be a caseworker and when I was in the field, I would drive out to some people's homes and it was really far away, sometimes 45 minutes to one hour away. And when I got there, I interviewed kids and I realized that a lot of things were happening to these kids for months and we never knew it because they live so far out in rural areas. So research also is connecting your geography to how often you get calls into our system. And that's the same for densely populated metropolitan cities where calls are really high and black and brown kids come into our system at higher rates. And then of course, there's research that points to implicit racial bias, which is fueled by systemic racism. And our system right now is really looking deeply into our implicit biases. And I tell people all the time, implicit bias is this automatic intrinsic system that lives in all of us that informs our decisions and informs our values. So research has linked caseworkers and professionals and their implicit bias to how much disparity is happening in our system. So that's what's really led to the issues and research has confirmed these things. So we are just now in America really trying to compile what strategies are being used. So I will start by telling you that we consider community as a strategy. So I tell people 
we have to really start utilizing our community partners in three ways. And one of those ways is strategizing around what are the needs in the community. So I tell people, number one, do a needs assessment. Figure out what are the gaps in service in the community. When you do that and you meet families later on, you know what issues and challenges that they've been facing because you have an understanding of what the community is lacking. So one way to strategize is to do some level of community needs assessment to see what families in the community need. I mean, that's the only way you can do primary prevention to help families before they come into our system. Another way to think about community is knowing what they can offer. The first step was knowing what they lack and what they don't have. So now it's time to know what are your partners offering? Is there therapy? Is there areas for people to get food if they need it? What are the primary prevention partners? And you have to take it a bit deeper than simply giving someone a referral and saying, you know, go to this place, go to that place. I encourage people in America and abroad to know your community service providers so well, you can pick up the phone and say, I'm sending a family. Or you can tell a family, go talk to and name someone specific. That's how connected we need to be to our community partners. So families aren't floating from service to service and there's no one really looking for them or no one meaningfully seeing that they're going to come. So another part of the community is bringing them to the table. So I tell people all the time, child protective services can't do the work of ending disparity and overrepresentation alone. You have to have your community partners at the learning table and the decision-making table. And what do I mean by that? I mean, we can learn about anti-racism and disparity all we want as CPS. You know, we call CPS Child Protective Services. We do that alone, but we need other partners to also be learning about that. A few moments ago, I talked about bias and other service providers. So there's bias all around us. It's not just CPS. So using community as a strategy is knowing what the needs are connecting with them meaningfully but also doing trainings and cross-discipline trainings cross-system trainings so we're continuing to learn the same material so if our cps system becomes really keen and anti-racist we're not going to be able to impact families if our community providers are not anti-racist i hope that makes sense Another strategy that we've been really honing in on in America is this idea of leadership, considering leadership a strategy. Okay. A lot of leaders lead child welfare and they stick to the status quo. They are driven by fear and they're driven by, you know, they're, they're risk averse. And we need courageous leaders and we need to strategize around leaders so that we say we want to emphasize protective factors in families. In America, we talk about protective factors as these strong attributes that families already have. Some examples are consistent employment, community connections, a positive attitude. Strong, courageous leaders emphasize protective factors and de-emphasize punitive measures those punitive measures of if you don't do this or that you'll be punished we don't want to coerce our families into doing things simply because we tell them to we want to partner with families and we want leaders to lead the way in that so we're strategizing around cultivating effective and courageous leadership and also cultivating leadership fortitude because it does get hard and it does get challenging to lead in an anti-racist way 
Another strategy that is getting quite a bit of traction in America is called blind removal meetings. So blind removal meetings came into play about six or seven years ago. A courageous leader in New York City decided that she wanted to impact these negative outcomes for Black children in her community. So what she did was, she did a training at first. Training is not the panacea, but it's a good first step. She wanted to train her entire workforce on implicit racial bias. And they learned about systemic racism and they gained a lot of awareness. After that, she decided to create a process where our personal values and opinions could not impact a family. That became known as blind removal meetings. Essentially, it works like this. A caseworker goes out to a home like normal. When they go out there, they meet the child, the family, they do an interview, they do a risk assessment. But if they would like to put that child in government care, they have to come back to the office and have a meeting. And they essentially state their case. They talk through what the issues are, but they never mention demographic information. They don't mention race or ethnicity or language barriers or even neighborhood or address. In that meeting, they focus on three things. What happened? And then family strength and resilience and capacity, and then relevant history. The relevant history is important because again, we all know that our system has everyone's criminal history and history within our agency that dates back for years and may not have a lot to do with the allegation. So we tell people to focus on what's the relevant history to what's happened today. After they do the presentation in this meeting, a decision is made whether the family is separated. And that decision is made never knowing the race of the family or even where they live. So tracking this program for over five years rendered pretty staggering results. They were able to decrease racial disparity in the foster care system by nearly 50% they stopped that many black kids from going under government care in foster care. Half of those kids were able to stay home with their families and get services and support to strengthen their families. So blind removals may not be the answer for everyone, but it's certainly worth a try. It was an experiment, we followed data, and it worked out really well. I highly encourage people to try the strategy and see if it works. There's an area in the United States that's really huge. It's the largest child welfare system in the country. So blind removals to them seems kind of daunting. Can we really get in a room and talk through a case when we have thousands and thousands of cases? Some of you might be thinking that. But I also encourage people to think through how to adapt to blind removals. If you can't come into a meeting and have a full blind removal meeting, can you redact information on your phone calls? Can you redact information if you're having a one-on-one -on -one meeting? Can you focus your conversation around those three elements, even if information isn't redacted? In this area of the country that did blind removals, it brought them keen awareness of their own biases. And it also sharpened their decision-making because they focused on concrete, observable things. And they didn't focus on their opinion about things. Another strategy that I want to explain is a legislative advocacy strategy. There are some places in America and they're trying to bring this level of legislation statewide. One example is Minnesota. 
They created statewide legislation that would create a governing body of people that would do a second review of any case threatening to separate a Black family. They wanted another set of eyes. They wanted this governed to be able to look at a case and just to make sure that all T's were crossed and I's were dotted. So again, another strategy could be advocating for statewide laws being changed. There are children in Australia who can't live with their parents and worry about where they're going to sleep tonight and who will take care of them. While many of these 46,000 children now live in home-based kinship or foster care, there are still 4,000 homes for kids and teenagers urgently needed. Can you provide a home for one child? Our goal is simple. Help us find a home for every child. Inquire or donate today at a ahomeforeverychild.org. So when I talk about what's next for the system, I often talk about the idea that what we've been doing for the last 40, 50 years has been evolutionary, right? And I tell people to consider evolution versus revolution. I also tell people that evolution is expected, normal, natural, but it's also neutral. So dating back historically to child welfare, and again, I know the history of child welfare in America, and you all know the history of child welfare in Australia, but we have to ask ourselves, how was our child welfare system built? Who was it built for, in service to whom? And what informed the principles that guided our system? And I tell people to come to present day and look at how we've evolved. Policies have come after policy after policy, essentially trying to clean up what the other policy couldn't do. These were all evolutionary policies. Again, expected, normal, and natural, but neutral. And I tell people what's next for child welfare is a revolution. We need revolutionary policies. We don't want to continue to evolve as a system because we've been evolving for 30, 40 plus years. It's time to revolutionize our system. A revolutionary policy is unexpected and transformative. And it literally changes all of the professionals in our system and it drastically changes how we engage with families. I want to talk about a revolutionary practice that's happening in America right now. It's not happening everywhere, but it is happening in some places. This idea of sharing power, power balancing postures in child welfare. Child welfare is a very powerful system. We have the power to take someone's kids. We also have the power to monitor what you're doing for a year or two or three years. We have a lot of power, but the only way to be transformative and revolutionary is if we learn to share that power with families. And how can we share power? In America, many of us are using family group decision-making, and perhaps some of you are using something similar. What we mean by this is some of us are inviting families to the decision-making table. When we sit down with families and talk about what's going to happen with their case, they're in there with us. And it's important so we're not talking about them like they're far removed and different from us. We should consider their family just like we consider our own families. And we get to hear their voice in the room. So many African-American mothers and Native American mothers feel unseen and unheard, especially in court proceedings. So family group decision-making 
is very important and making a big impact here. That is a revolutionary way to share power. We don't want to simply evolve. So the question of what's next for us, I believe what's next is a continuous flow of revolutionary policies in child welfare. Although I am a firm believer that our system should be wrapping services and support around families and keeping them together, there will be times where a child may have to spend time out of their home in our care. We certainly hope that it's brief and we want foster carers to be equipped and also supportive. And I often tell people here in our country, we have amazing foster parents and I tell them, consider yourself a part of our system. So there are some foster parents that use this system as a pathway to adoption. And I tell people that's not what our system is. Foster cares are an extension of the child welfare system and your role is to, of course, create a safety net for that child, but also to support the efforts of reunifying that family. So what foster parents can do to help the work of equity is advocate for visitation. We have some places in our country where biological families rarely see their children and they don't see them regularly. And some of, sometimes that's due to a foster parent's bias. Sometimes it's due to a foster parent's bandwidth. They just don't have the time. So I encourage foster carers to do all they can to advocate for strengthening that family bond. You are there as a loving and supportive part of our system, but that child, the best possible outcome for that child is to stay connected to their biological families and to ultimately be reunified. I also have told foster parents, especially if there's a foster parent with a child of a different race. So foster parents here that have black children who are interested in talking about anti-racism and they want to do more than ignore color. Because a lot of foster parents say, I don't want to talk about color. It makes me uncomfortable. It's important because if you completely ignore the color on this child's skin who's in your home, you're really diminishing a part of them. So some advice I give people is to ask a child, when's the last time you felt loved and seen and heard? And tell the child that you're asking that question because you want to create an environment where they're loved and seen and heard. As a black child, they're often overlooked and misunderstood historically. So to have their foster parent ask that question in a genuine way, it'll go a long way with that child. So the number one, advocate for family visitation. And number two, open your eyes, see their color and validate them and try your best to make sure their voice is heard and that they're seen, that they're loved. So as foster carers, I know your job isn't easy. And I know that the, the structures and complexities of racial disparity sometimes feel out of your hands, but you can play a role in it, especially. And one thing that we want you to do is not to take the colorblind approach. Definitely talk about it and show as much love and empathy as you can to that child because they have endured something very traumatic. Being separated from your family, no matter the circumstances, is extremely traumatic. I do not think that our country does exhaustive efforts to find family members. You know, in America, we call this kinship care. I'm not sure what it's called in Australia. But in America, when it comes to kinship care, we have to lean more on extended family members. And even if you can't find a family member, we like to say things like, who already loves that child? 
When you ask yourself who already loves that child, it may be a teacher, it may be a neighbor, but it's someone that has familiarity with that child and the child is in place with people that they don't know. So I'll start by saying that you're right. There are some circumstances where a child can't safely return home, but have we done exhaustive efforts to find their family members or find someone who knows and loves them already? So let's say that they have. They have done all they can to find someone and they just can't. In America, and I'm sure in Australia, we call this adoption. Now it's time to matriculate through a pathway to get a permanent family. I believe the same advice about foster carers when it comes to adoptive, adoptive parents, especially if the child is of a different race, talk about race, don't be colorblind to it, and make really strong efforts to diversify your friends, diversify where the child is, because there's research out there that talks about identity issues for kids that are sheltered and not around people that are a reflection of who they are. So when you adopt a child, I think it's an incredible opportunity to expand your family and have a diverse family, but also to remember that child's endured a lot of trauma and they need to be in an environment where they not only see themselves, but they're also loved and accepted for all that they are. And it's not, we don't want to, we don't want to create an environment where we want them to assimilate or we want them to conform to what we are as parents. So parents that are adopting kids that are of different races, remember, it's okay for them to stand out, validate who they are. They don't have to conform or assimilate to your way of life or, or the way you see things. And I think that in the long run is going to help kids grow up and have a strong identity, but also grow up with a, with, a, with a loving family. Thank you all for listening. I'm so glad I was able to be with you. If you would like additional information, my website is www.jessicapricephd.com. There's information on there about blind removals and also all of my updated articles where I discuss a lot of the issues that I just talked about. Thank you. What an amazing talk. Thank you, Dr. Price, for your insight. Thanks for listening to a Home and Healing for Every Child podcast. To find out more about our work, visit our website at adoptchange.org.au. Don't forget, if you like this episode, head to our social media pages on Facebook and Instagram and let us know. I'm Michelle Stackpool, and I'll see you next time.